everyone. It's great to see you all here. I'm a little bit under the weather this morning, so please forgive my low and raspy voice. God and his sovereignty sought to give that to me this morning, but I am still very excited to get to be here to open God's word, especially with this being graduation Sunday. But Mark Twain during his twilight years of life, once quipped that life would be infinitely happier if we could only be born at the age of 80 and gradually approach 18. And he's not the only one who thinks that youth is wasted on the young. William Shakespeare called old age a hideous winter, and the ancient Greek poet Homer referred to it as loathsome. And as, far as, as long as men can remember, older men have wanted to be younger again. And I'm sure the same is true for women. There has been at all times and epochs a desire for the legendary fountain of youth. King Solomon of Israel was no different. His life was a full one, measured by many successes, chronicled in 1 Kings, two, uh, 1 Kings chapters 2 through 10, and then also his many failures found in 1 Kings chapter 11. But as a young man, as you know the story, Solomon was given a gift. Basically, he got a signed check from God to cash in on any gift he wanted. We know the story. He asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom instead of a long life and instead of wealth. And so God made him the wisest man to ever live, and he also gave him a long life and wealth. Well, we come today to Solomon's final book, the book of Ecclesiastes. Proverbs, you might call it, might see it as his wisdom from the perspective of a parent. You see all the my son language within it. And Ecclesiastes, then, is, is his wisdom looking back on life from more of the perspective of a grandparent. Look- <laughs> what he learned through study and practice fills the pages of Proverbs, while his reflections on his experiences in long life fill the pages of Ecclesiastes. It's almost a book as saying, what I wish I knew when I was young. Now, many commentators, and I propose most lay people, see Ecclesiastes as only having a negative tone, right? When you hear Ecclesiastes, you knee-jerk to, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But many pastors and theologians have recognized that this, Solomon's final treatise is actually quite positive in its purpose, and furthermore, they find it positive in its various parts. Dr. Bill Barrick is one of these. He's formerly of the Master Seminary, and he points out that when it comes to terms that are repeated often in Ecclesiastes, positive terms like good, wisdom, God, and heart are each more numerous than the term vanity and all other negative terms. Barrick then, in his commentary, goes on to call uh, Ecclesiastes the Philippians of the Old Testament because of its encouragement, and he convincingly proves his point in his, in his commentary. Now, Ecclesiastes is a striking book. It's ripe with theology on the person of God, with theology on the nature of man, how God deals in providence, and also teaches much about the future judgment that is coming on the world. We'll kind of see some of all of that today. And unfortunately, we've got to skip over most of the book, this incredible book, to reach what Dr. Barrett calls the grand finale. The grand finale. And that starts in chapter 11, verse 9. So go with me there if you're not there already. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9, we will see the grand finale of Ecclesiastes. And we'll learn from it today that God calls you to enjoy life under the sun and prepare for life beyond the sun. God calls you to enjoy life under the sun and prepare for life beyond the sun. 
Let's read together Ecclesiastes 11, 9 through the end of the book. Follow along with me. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, and clouds return after the rain, in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will rise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard... Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Let me briefly open in a word of prayer as we get into this text. Father, bless the opening of your word now. May it instill great truths in our hearts and instill in us, Lord, a life that is lived just for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, how are we to enjoy this life under the sun? And how are we to do it while preparing for the next? What's Solomon's secret? We're going to see three charges to keep that will enable your success in this life and the next. And the first charge, you see it there in your sermon outline in the bulletin, the first charge is to relish life. Relish life, verses 9 and 10. Note that these two verses are particularly aimed at young people. And I picked this text specifically because we are at graduation Sunday. We have, I think it's a record-setting, 10 people graduating, um, nine from high school, one from college this, this, this very week, as many of them have finals. And I just want to say, A, congrats to you guys. Well done. You made it this far. Four years to go for most of you. But uh, well done on your, on your studies. Ahead of you comes a time at college. Most, many of you are going to UW, and you will have some great memories at UW. You'll have some great times at college some of my own greatest memories come from my college days. I went to the Master's College down in so- Southern California. And at the college, we'd, I, we'd laugh all the time in the dorms over, over dumb stuff. We'd do all kinds of fun things. We'd go to exciting places. We'd play crazy games. We'd, we'd, pull, we'd, you know, we'd pull harmless pranks, RD-approved ones. And you know, we'd do all kinds of fun stuff. 
I remember I mean, one time we did it for spring break. We'd, me and nine other friends did a 10-day road trip in two cars from L.A. all the way to my house and back up here in Seattle. It was, I mean, all kinds of fun times. And so you graduates, you will have some fond memories looking back on your college years one day. You will likely make many new friends and go on many adventures, and you'll hopefully have some fun in your dorms and at sporting events and the like. And you should not feel guilty for enjoying these years. Nobody should try to rob you of these good times. God won't. Indeed, through the pen of Solomon, God says in verse 9, Rejoice, young man, in your childhood. And that word childhood, it's, it's, it's better translated youth. Most versions have youth in there. The idea is in your teen years. They didn't have teen, teen years back then in, in terminology. But it's, the idea is in, when you're young. Rejoice, young man, when you're young. Rejoicing, we see, is directly commanded to young people. That word in Hebrew is quite straightforward. It means to rejoice or to be glad. And he emphasizes it three times. He gives three phrases, one after the other here in verse 9, uh, just to emphasize what, that, this, that this is right and good. Typical Hebrew repetition repeats things two times to emphasize it. We get a threefold repetition telling us that it is good for youth to enjoy life. Just look at the second phrase in there. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And then the third phrase, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. E.W. Hengstenberg said this. He says, cheerfulness here is not merely permitted, it is commanded and represented as an essential element of piety. Don't miss this, graduates and all young people. God wants you to enjoy life. God wants you to enjoy life. But this is actually to everyone and not just to young people. Look back up at verse 8. We, we started at verse 9. Look back to verse 8. It says right at the beginning, Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. There's no age maximum there. And flip back with me one page to chapter 9, verses 7 and 10. Verses 7 through 10. They say this, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved of your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which she has given you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Friends, God is not a cosmic killjoy trying to keep you depressed or unhappy in life. He created this world for our good. He said that it was good. Included in that intention for our good is certainly an intention for our joy and for our gladness. Now, as you suspect, there are some who balk at this teaching and who, who exclaim that joy is only for the next life, but not for this one. We just need to get through it, grin and bear it, and, and make it to heaven. One commentator long ago takes Solomon's verse here in verse 9 to say that Solomon is speaking in jest. He's only joking. Right? It's as if Solomon's saying, fine, since you won't listen to God, young people, go have fun and live it up. You're only heaping up judgment for yourself. Fine, go have at it. This commentator then cites Numbers 15.35, and others cite it too, which reads, Numbers 15.35, Remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. Well, isn't that exactly the opposite of what Solomon's telling you, young people, here in 11 verse 9? Well, no, actually, when you take context into account. There's no vacillation here. Numbers is concerned with desires leading one to disobedience. 
Ecclesiastes is concerned with joy in the context of obedience. Numbers says, don't follow your sinful desires. And Ecclesiastes says, follow your God-honoring desires. And that is important to recognize because verse 9 ends on that note. Look back at verse 9. It says at the end, Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Priority must be given to God and to his will as revealed in his word. No one should ever make his or her own desires their first priority. Our desires come second to God's will and ways. Verse 9 is in no way saying, go and do whatever you want, regardless of what it is. We must bear in mind that judgment day is not far away, and all actions that we take will be judged. This reminder of judgment for everything we do at first seems to hang over our heads like the sword of Damocles. But we need to understand that our joy has a goal worth reaching. Otherwise, it is simply trivial and pointless. Without God's glory and God's righteousness as the base for our joy in life, that joy is only shallow and empty, like a brand new sparkling red Ferrari that has no engine inside. It's pointless. When life is enjoyed in light of who God is and who God has called you to be, joy is at its fullest. Joy is at its fullest. And so to borrow the words of Old Testament scholar Derek Kigner, we are called to rejoice responsibly. The Apostle Paul is likewise all about rejoicing in life. We saw it on the screen always. He says, rejoice always. Philippians 4.4, 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. His context is rejoicing within the bounds of Christ, which is exactly the same parameters given by Solomon. Graduates, everyone, our lives are to be filled with rejoicing while underneath the mindfulness of God. If we're not finding any enjoyment in this life, we need to figure out what's ailing us and seek to put it off. We are to enjoy this life. Remember, rejoice in verse 9 here is an imperative. It is a command to us. And so verse 10 actually gives us some practical tips on how to increase this gladness quotient in our lives. Look, look at verse 10 with me. It says, So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Now, if we only focus, if we only focus on the negatives of life, we'll miss out on the enjoyment opportunities that God gives us. Both the good and the bad are passing away, so why only focus on the bad? Why focus on the bad? According to Pastor Philip Ryken, this verse is not a call to deny the very real suffering that everyone experiences. Nor is it a call to escape pain by living for pleasure. Rather, it is a call to take care of both our mental and physical health. It might help to note here that the word grief, remove grief from your heart, it says, is not referring to anguish, like the anguish that comes from losing a loved one, but it carries that, that Charlie Brown, good grief kind of idea to it, that, that idea of frustration or vexation. And so we see here, if we want to live a life of joy, a life that we relish, we must learn to cut off anger and frustration at its root. We must learn to put anger and frustration away from us. The verse gives a second example here. It says, who takes pleasure in physical pain, right? Put away pain from your body. Does anybody here take pleasure in pain? I didn't think so. I actually had some friends in college who I think did, where they just liked the attention that came from it. And uh, side note, college students are not immune from stupidity. 
just, just so you know. They, just because they make it through high school doesn't mean that, that stupid is gone. Well, one time, these two friends, they took, they took two hard-boiled eggs from the cafeteria and went out behind Hotchkiss, the dorm we lived in, took off their shirts, and proceeded to throw one egg at each other's back as hard as they possibly could from 10 feet away. The, the welt on the first guy's back was outrageous. I think he just did it just so he could like, show off how, I don't know, how, how crazy he was. The, the second guy who went was luckier because the first guy's pain was so intense that he couldn't throw it very hard. Well, Solomon instructs us in the very opposite of these egg-throwing tactics. Put away pain from your body, he says. It's a call to avoid flesh-harming practices and also asceticism, which is keeping things away from yourself that you need. In Solomon's time, pain was often inflicted or endured for religious purposes, right? Just think about the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, how they'd cut themselves. If one can avoid or remove bodily pain or discomfort, that avenue should be taken, Solomon tells us here. Paul tells Timothy, likewise, to take a little wine in his drink to help him with his frequent ailments, 1 Timothy 5.23. Timothy was gaining absolutely nothing spiritually by needlessly enduring pain, and neither will you. There is no spiritual gain in needlessly enduring pain. Now, wisdom must be applied um, to the extent at which we pursue this, given the, uh, the magnitude of medicines available today. But in short, in short, it is not wrong to alleviate suffering caused by pain, physical pain. In fact, Solomon, inspired by God, encourages it. And why do that? Verse 10 says, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Our life is temporary, so why spend unnecessary time in pain if it can be avoided? We are to enjoy life to the fullest, all within the economy of God. I must say personally, I have, I have found these verses in, in verse 9 uh, particularly uh, to be so very freeing. When I first heard them, I was at a men's retreat also at Master's College. We were out at Lake Piru Campground near Ventura, California. It's this big punch bowl lake of deep blue surrounded by vertical hills on the, side, on the sides that East Coast people would call mountains. And on the edge of the lake was this large and mostly flat campground with a recessed shoreline. In the morning on that last day of our retreat, we were instructed to take an hour of time with the Lord and work through a small sheet of devotional questions that they handed to us. And the whole sheet was based on these two verses, Ecclesiastes 11, 9, and 10. My hour on that, placid, on that shoreline of that placid Lake Piru was life-changing. I don't actually remember what the sheet, the sheet asked specifically or even details of what I took away but I do recall it changed my thinking about God and also my place in this world. I was free in Christ to enjoy life. I was, I was free to enjoy life. I didn't have to feel guilty about having so much fun in college. I didn't have to feel guilty as long as my fun wasn't s- sinful or dishonoring to God. And we had lots of fun at Master's College. Master's College is all about having a good time in so many various ways. Obviously, they focus a lot on studies, too. I'm not neglecting that. But we had a lot of fun. Just wanted to throw that in there. I did graduate. The fun that we, have in, that we had in college, we were to treasure it and enjoy it. Young men and women, God invites you to enjoy life here on earth. Be free within the context of holiness to follow after the desires of your heart. Now, this positive approach to life that we are to take 
must rest on something more substantial than just cheerfulness or simple happiness alone. We need a foundation on which to stand. We need to take Solomon's second charge to us, which is remember life's brevity. And we'll see that in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12, focusing mostly just on the first verse. Remember life's brevity. Now, Stephen, you might ask me, why are you calling the second charge, remember life's brevity, when the first four words say, remember also your creator? Isn't that a better title to this, this point? Well, maybe. <laughs> maybe honestly, I, I admit it might be. I've gone back and forth between the two. But the whole of verses 1 through 8 is all about reminding us how short life is. Solomon clearly wants to drive that point home. <clears throat> Friends, the most recent studies still confirm what has always been true. 10 out of 10 people die. Nobody escapes death. Verses 1 to 7 here make up one sentence in Hebrew, all describing what it's like to, the com- to come to the point of death and to die. The wise contemplate death, which, to quote William Brown, purges the soul of all futile striving and paradoxically, anxiety. It purges us from anxiety as well. It is good and wise for us to think upon our death. It is good to think about it. We'll do that in just a minute. But we've got to st- st- um, pause here real quick and look at this reference to creator. The reference to God here as creator is so apt and so fitting. Any true consideration of death also leads one to think upon how they came to be. Who created them? We must start by recognizing that there is a creator, the great God above. We have to recognize that we're not autonomous individuals. We're not freelance humans working for ourselves. As sinful human beings, we often find it, I myself am included in this, we often find it way too easy to ignore the T in TULIP, right? It stands for total depravity. Friends, we are sinners. And if left to ourselves, we would ruin our lives, we'd ruin our world, and we'd ruin our souls. And yet God, our creator, came down to save us. He rescues our souls and forgives us through the atoning blood of his son on the cross. As followers of this creator God, we submit our very lives to him, which is how we were always designed to be. We were always designed to be submitting to him and following him. Salvation in Jesus puts us back in right standing with God. It returns us to a right standing How could we then dare forget God when God has forgotten our sins, saying in Christ, he will remember our sins no more? Hebrews 8, 12. Friends, salvation must affect how we live. It must affect how you live. The word remember here, starting off our verse in 12.1, it always involves action in Hebrew. It's an active calling to mind that shapes one perspective of how to live in the present. We must regularly and continually remember that we serve a great and wonderful God, the God who created you and me. This must shape our lives, and especially so when you're young. Dr. Bill Barrick states it this way, combining this teaching with that in our previous point. He says, If an individual neglects serving the Creator, the capacity for joy will be lost. Your ability to find joy in life is directly correlated with the depth of your relationship with God. So, 
What will you do for him before your life comes to an end? How will you give him your best energies while your life is yet young? A wise elderly saint once said to me recently, in context of our youth group, she said, remind our youth to use their energies for God while they still have it. So youth, use your energies for God while you still have it. Young men, young women, you are in the prime of your life. There is still so much you can do for God with your life. We cannot forget that life is short. It is brief, and you will rapidly find yourself near the end when you will so greatly wish that you could have done more for God. But you'll find that you'll have no energy left. And that, that's what the rest of the sentence running on through verse 7 is all about. It's a forlorn picture of life as it draws near to its end. Now there's a scene in a certain movie that most of you have probably seen, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. And it's a haunting picture of Arwen that she receives of her life if, if she were to forsake her kinsmen elves and to um, stay behind and marry Aragorn. Her father Elrond, as he explains what would be her future fate, we see on the screen a figure wrapped in black veils, standing beside a stone coffin topped with a horizontal bust of Arwen's deceased husband and king. A once majestic marble courtyard lies behind the black figure in pale gray ruins with scraggly leafless trees dotting the edges. A paltry breeze from billowing clouds blows straw across the stone pavements of the courtyard and wisps the black veil on the forehead of what we now know to be the lonely Arwen, hundreds of years after the passing of her dearly beloved. Few scenes in any movie leave its viewer feeling more hollow and glum than this dire depiction of Arwen's long future after Aragorn's passing. Solomon is likewise here in verses 1 through 7, choreographing a scene of gloom. He's not making any explicit points in the various details, or nor does he have one thread in mind. He's simply trying to convey one scene, one picture, one overarching um, idea of the inevitability of life, and that is our death. Just briefly, let's look at these pictures. Verse 2 looks at, uh, potentially looks at the blindness that's setting in and the darkening of what a person can see near death. Verse 3 and 4 take a picture of, this, of, a, how, of a once boisterous house and, they, and it pictures it in decline. Verse 5 depicts aging and things on the edge of death. In, in the middle of the verse, it talks about the almond tree, which blossoms. Almond, tree, almond trees blossom in white, which probably pictures hair turning from black to white. The locust drags along, right? Grasshoppers, they jump, but it's dragging along on the ground. It no longer has the strength to jump. The caperberry was a prized fruit for stimulating bodily appetites, but for the very old, it was ineffective. All of these characteristics indicate that the aging person is on their final journey to their eternal home, which at the end of verse 5, it makes explicit, saying, for man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the streets. It all draws to an ominous close in verse 7. Look there with me. It says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, which is a picture of man's burial on the earth, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Life will draw to a close and then end for us all. The key is to remember God before you reach this point. Look, look back at verse 1. It says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before 
the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. Verse 6, before the silver cord is broken. Young people and everyone in this room, if you still have energy to live, remember your creator before these days come. Remember your creator. Live for him. Give God the best years of your life. Use your abundant energy for his purposes. Serve God with all you've got while you still have time and talent to do so. And friends, let's beware of Satan's nothing strategy. Satan's nothing strategy. C.S. Lewis coins this term in his screw tape letters. Uh, he, um, Wormwood is, is talking about how his goal, the devil's goal is to leave man at the end of his life looking back and lament and saying, I now see that I spent most of my life doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. According to Lewis, the nothing strategy steals away man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why in the gratification of curiosities. His goal isn't necessarily to have you sin big, but to do nothing to have a useless life. Friends, youth, everyone, don't just use your life to have fun. Use your life for God and his glory. Spread his fame at school, at work, and at play. The greater you give yourself to God, the greater will be your capacity for joy, not only in this life, but also in the next. And there is a next life. Solomon even hints at it here at end of verse 7 when he says, the spirit will return to God who gave it. Don't waste your life doing nothing of any importance. Don't waste your life following only worldly things. Don't forget verse 8 that Solomon tacks on here. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Nothing in all of Solomon's worldly life experiences had led him home to God. Nothing he had experienced settled his soul or quieted his heart. Nothing in this present life under the sun satisfies. And so he concludes where he begins, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's been his cry from the first verse of this book. So what is the answer? Remember your creator. This very passage points us beyond anything under the sun to the land beyond the sun where the creator dwells and it invites a response to him. The final chapter of Solomon's wisdom comes to a close and we're here now left with many swirling, seemingly unconnected truths, but no not yet to tie them together. How does the end of 11 and 12 come together? And so Solomon gives us this epilogue in which he distills it for us. And here we find our third and final charge. Our third charge is revere God. Revere God. And just as a quick aside, Many think a separate author attached this epilogue to Solomon's writings in an attempt to sum them up, but there's really no need to arrest authorship from Solomon himself. Elsewhere in the book, he refers to himself in the third person. He calls himself the preacher, and everything he says here is in keeping with the themes he's already mentioned. And this final message that he gives, it is truly his. Here we see no more talk of vanity and, that in, and no more talk about what we do under the sun doesn't matter. Instead, according to Philip Ryken, this final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that everything does. Everything matters. The conclusion is found truly in verses 13 to 14. 
And there's a, there's a few verses tacked on here giving some more information. And just really briefly, we'll look at this real fast. Verses 9 to 10, Solomon um, simply writes a few things about himself. He's remembering life is nearly over. How could he not? He just wrote the last eight verses talking about how all die. And what did he, what did he do in his life? He writes, that how, did, how did he want to be remembered and how did he find joy in life? He tells us, verse 9, he taught people knowledge. He carefully and thoughtfully put together Proverbs and he sought to write delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. That was how he found his joy and what he used his life for. We can thank him. We have three books of the Bible thanks to him. In verse 11, we see that wisdom are, are like goads and nails, which they spur a person onto actions and they cause things to stick in the memory. And verse 12 is, is probably every college student's favorite verse. Right? But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Right? Every college student, especially those right now, I know you guys are doing finals this next week at, at Bellevue College. You're probably like, yeah, I'm weirded out. Well, what Solomon's saying here in this verse is, is don't run to books for all your answers. Don't have an excessive zeal for cold, hard facts and details. Rather, appreciate and meditate on wisdom. He's saying medi- wisdom is what you need, not just cold, hard facts. So every, youth, focus your, life, focus your life's course on gaining and following wisdom not just details. Wisdom is to be heeded, not ignored. Why? End of verse 11 tells us they are given by one shepherd. Wisdom is given to us by one shepherd. And this reference here to one shepherd is clearly a reference to God. It couldn't be Solomon. He's already referred to himself as preacher throughout the book. These wise sayings are straight from God. And there is here in the Old Testament a doctrine of inspiration. Both wise men and prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit as, the Holy Spirit, as men spoke from God. Cross-referencing 2 Peter 1.21 there. And so God is the source of the words of Ecclesiastes, not some pessimistic attitude, not some cynic looking back on life and saying he, at what he should have done instead. God is the source here. And so God is furthermore the source of this resounding conclusion in verses 13 and 14. This entire summa- this in- these last three verses are not just the entire summation of Ecclesiastes, but of all the wisdom Solomon accumulated over his entire life. The wisest man to ever live writes his final words in this way. His entire life's work all boils down to this. Verses 13 and 14. Read, look at it again as I finish. Read it again. This is the conclusion. When all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. What is Solomon's conclusion for living life under the sun? It's fear God and keep his commandments. That's his conclusion to everything. Commenting on this verse 400 years ago, Matthew Henry wrote, The root of our religion is fear of God reigning in the heart, which is a reverence for his majesty, a deference to his authority, and a dread of his wrath. Oh, do you fear God? Do you fear God? Do you revere him? Do you keep his commandments? Why? This applies to every person. 
says our text. It applies to every person on our planet. This is our purpose and goal in life. The ESV captures the Hebrew a little more clearly. It reads in the ESV, this is the whole duty of man. Fearing God and following his ways should consume your whole life. We are also to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we know. What does it mean to love God? 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Love is proved by keeping God's commands. Solomon gets this. This is what Solomon concludes after his life of successes and failures, of study and prayer. This is what God has inspired him to conclude. Men and women, young and old, is your whole life bound up in fearing God and following his ways? Oh, how important it is. If anyone would like their joy in life to be full, come to God. Surrender to him. Give your everything to him. When you give your all to God and seek to be holy as he is holy, your joy will be full, your cup will overflow with it, and you will fulfill your purpose for existing. And this is what we will do throughout eternity. Friends, enjoy life under the sun, yes, but prepare for life beyond the sun. These go hand in hand. Verse 14 makes it explicit. There is a coming day of judgment in which everything that we have done on earth will be judged by God, even the hidden things that nobody knows about, whether good or evil. For those who reject God outright, it will be a judgment unto everlasting death in the lake of fire to eternal torment and suffering. May this be true of no one here. May the fear of God drive you to flee from sin into his open arms of salvation. Revere him. Turn to his son, Jesus Christ. For those of you who have repented and believed in Christ Jesus and the salvation that he earned for you on the cross, you will be saved from hell and rewarded in heaven based on the good and bad that you've done in this life. Psalm 103.11 tells us that his love is on those who fear him. His love is as high as the heavens are above the earth. Such great love he has for us. And so are you using your energy now to give your everything to God, your creator, who loves you? Are you heaping up rewards for yourself in heaven? I found this great verse in Revelation 18. I wasn't familiar with it. Revelation, excuse me, 11, verse 18. And this verse proclaims a future day when the time came for the dead to be judged, it says, and the time to reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Jesus Christ will come to judge the dead. He will reward the saints and those who fear his name, but he will destroy the lost. This is Solomon's ultimate motivation for fearing God and preparing for life beyond the sun. And may it be yours as well. In heaven, we will never grow old. We will not tire. We will experience a real and true fountain of youth in the presence of our God and King. Let us enjoy this life that we have under the sun and give God our all as we prepare for life beyond the sun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for inspiring this text and for God for freeing us to enjoy this life. It's not just about getting through it, Lord. You've made it good. You've made it good for us. But God, may we always do that in remembrance of who you are. May we give all that we are, young or old, Lord, to you, 
May we spend our energy on living for you, on serving you, on proclaiming you. God, may we be all in for you. In Jesus' name, amen.